This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that In the Blood, the next novel in the James Reese saga, is coming in hot on May 17th in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook, and is available for pre order now. My guest today, Rick Prado. He's a legend in intelligence circles. It was such an honor to talk to him. He had an incredible career at the Central Intelligence Agency and is just a, uh, an amazing individual. His book, Black Ops, is out now. Be sure to go to Rick Prado, that's P-R-A-D-O.com to find out more about him. And I cannot recommend this book enough, As you'll and you'll find out why in the podcast. So now, without further ado, Rick Prado. Oh my gosh, what a ride you have had. And what an amazing example you are to this next generation of people that want to serve their country. I mean, there's so much to, to go over with you. I don't even know where to, where to start. Um, but uh, your upbringing is, I mean, it is, it, it's incredible that you were born in Cuba. You saw the effects of Castro's uh, regime and the revolution and made it to this country and then go into this life of service and have touch points with these legends in special operations and intelligence circles. And uh, you probably won't say it yourself, but become a legend yourself in uh, as a go through this process uh, on this journey. So, I mean, incredible. Uh, And I'm going to let you say something here too, because I know I'm just blabbing on here, but uh, this is the book that I, I mean, I would have loved to have read this book, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, high school. Um, Because Books like this are going to inspire the next generation. Just like some of those books that you read growing up inspired you. I mean, you're now paying that forward and a whole nother generation is going to enter intelligence circles because they're inspired by the things that you did. And I think it's just remarkable. Thank you very much. I, um, I think that that's, that's a great, great start because the purpose of the book uh, actually came out from my frustration that my agency is the most maligned worst represented um, by Hollywood primarily. Uh, And the fact that we have this secrecy that goes from the quiet professionals, but they take it to the extreme. So we don't capitalize on putting the word out of the things that we can. And and the book is a perfect example. The book was cleared by the agency. So everything in there was authorized. You read it, you see that there's a lot of examples. There's some things that were taken out. Um, But for the average American, Best case scenario, you know, the, the, the CIA is this pit bull you keep in the backyard, throw them a bone once in a while and let them kill whatever gets into your yard. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Jason Bourne does not represent by my, my clique. American May definitely doesn't. Even some of the more benign people, a lot of people say Three Days of a Condor was a great movie. I said it was. But it also depicts the agency in a very negative, eat your own kind of thing. So. When, when, uh, when I was confronted by primarily Kofor Black, who was my boss and then my partner in, in Blackwater, um, we, we talked about it incessantly. You need to tell your story because your story can carry so many things um, in the sense of being a you know, hyphenated American, even though we don't hyphenate anything in my family. We're Americans. Um, so it, it just goes on and on. You know, the, uh, the, the amount of support has been humbling. 
But the goal for me from the very beginning has been to honor those people in the agency that have sacrificed so much. I mean, divorces and, 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 and family issues and sacrifices and separations. And we have 137 stars on our wall. We are a very small organization. We're not Army, Navy, Air Force, or Marines. Um, and our uh, you know, director of operations is even smaller. And 137 in a third of those are post 9-11. And some of those I knew personally. So for me, I, I, besides having a debt of honor to this country, which is why I started what I started doing you know, at age 20, um, I also felt that my colleagues, especially those who have sacrificed the most, deserves their grandchildren to be able to pick up that book and say, oh, wow. So that's what they really did. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read a couple of things from it here, but, uh, this first, uh, this is the first thing that I, that I got to that I, that I highlighted. Um, and, uh, it, it's, it's so well-written and, and, uh, and so cool. You say there's a war that goes on in broad daylight in the everyday streets of cities around the world. It has its own rules, its own foot soldiers and leaders, and it is invisible to those simply wanting to live their lives in peace. Like a universal police officer walking the local beat of international crime and intrigue, you'll never look at everyday American life the same. You'll see the danger lurks from seemingly innocuous sources. You'll find Hezbollah sleeper cells in your own town, North Korean agents sneaking across our borders, terrorists lurking and lying in wait. It is thankless, anonymous task stopping these forces. But my colleagues do so not for accolades and fame. They seek only to preserve the lives of strangers in the nation they love. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. It is moving. And I think it really captures what, uh, what those who are drawn to a life of service do it for, for people they'll never, they'll never know for a way of life. Um, and I love how you talk about in this book, uh, your upbringing in Cuba, um, because you, a lot of us in this country are, are so comfortable and we have the luxury of, uh, not having those experiences that would make us appreciate the freedoms, options, and opportunities that, uh, that people like you sacrifice so much for that generations from the inception of this country up until today sacrificed everything for. Um, but you have that, you have that tangible touch point with a dictatorship, uh, from which you and your family had to flee. Um, and I wanted to ask you about your first firefight at age seven. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I was born in Cuba in 1951, and the revolution started around 56, 57, Castro's in the mountains. The mountain range nearest my town was where Che Guevara was um, held up with his guys. So my town was the first. It was a good-sized town. It was a cattle town. My dad was a cowboy. Um, they would come down, and they do raids on, 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 the, on the bars that the, the, the military or the police would frequent. and. Um, one of those nights I was watching TV with a nanny because my parents had gone out to dinner and we hear commotion outside, you know, a couple of shots random, but nothing yet. But I knew that there was uh, something going on. So typical seven year old kid, curious, I walk, I run up to the window and I crank the window open. It's those jealousy windows. And now I'm hearing even more gunshots. Well, what I didn't realize was that below the parapet of that window was a guerrilla fighter with a fully automatic weapon. And he let off two blasts of that stuff. 
And I was frozen, partially with surprise, but also there was a certain exhilaration about what was going on. And then, of course, my nanny grabbed me by the neck and took me away and made me swear that I would never tell my parents when I didn't for 50 years. But, so, you know, but, you know, as, as, as impactful as that was, because there were bodies and there were, there was blood and all this other stuff, what really started settling in my brain was when I saw Castro take over shortly, shortly thereafter, I mean, not, not even six months after his tenure began um, the confiscation of private property, the forcing of the schools to, to teach his methodology and his ideology, um, wearing uniforms to school, you know, they had, you know, the different segments of, you know, of, you know, ages and all this kind of stuff. And, and then I started seeing the, the, the oppression, the, um, the abuses. And I will remember till the day that I die, we had gone up to Havana and I was probably nine, nine and a half about nine and a half. And uh, we were going to Havana. And as we turned into this park, there were men hanging from trees and lampposts with signs around them that said contra revolutionaries. And of course, my poor mom, who was riding shotgun, jumped in the back of the seat trying to cover my eyes. Don't look, don't look. That was a little late. I, 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 that's, that's tattooed in my brain also. So that and then the departure. I mean, uh, as you mentioned, you know, my uh, I'm an only child and my parents for nothing else than love for freedom, especially my dad. My mom was following my dad's leadership. She was, you know, she believed it, but uh, she had a little bit more pain executing. Um, was a, He did not want his son to grow up in a communist country. And imagine you taking your 10 year old son your only child and putting them on a plane to go to a country that you've never been and may never even visit for freedom. Uh, when Castro took over, my dad had a 57 Pontiac. We had a TV and we had a phone in our house. We were solid middle-class and he was willing to give all that up and go into poverty as we started in the States for freedom. And you can, you can imagine what kind of lesson that is for a 10 year old. I turned 11 in an orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado. Uh, you think Pueblo, Colorado is a blue t- a collar town now. You should have seen it in 62. Uh, but he never, he never regretted. And in the day he came to this country that we were able to get reunited, he never took a welfare check. He always had two jobs. My mom worked the sweatshop and he told us, we will be residents as soon as possible. We will be citizens of this country as soon as possible. And we ain't going anywhere. So that, that's kind of like the forging of my metal. You know, when you have that kind of beginning and that kind of parents and those kind of examples, um, I, am, I am very proud that God gave me this path and that I had the, uh, the fortitude to follow it because there is a price to admission to what we do, you know? Oh, yeah. And- you know, I've studied a little bit, mostly the the, the insurgency and and uh, and Che Guevara and, and on that sort of thing. When I look at Cuba and Bay of Pigs, and I look at it through a uh, uh, standpoint of special operations and that and that sort of a, a lens, but I hadn't read about the Castro youth before I read your book. I don't know why I missed that in uh, in my reading up to this point. But uh, what was the Castro youth? 
Well, you know, the, he immediately started militarizing everything. Um, the, the first thing that actually happened was he designated in every neighborhood. You know, we, we say neighborhood watch now is to, to keep an eye out on the thieves. Neighborhood watch in Cuba was every block had a person that would report what you said when you came in uh, and they took shifts and they had to serve it that way. So, you know, that, that, that in itself was a big step into that militarization. And then what he did was with the schools, he, uh, you know, all the kids have to wear these particular uniforms. You know, imagine I'm nine years old and I am having to teach how to read to farmers in the outskirts of my town. How does an eight-year-old try to teach the absurdity of that uh, still you know, resonates in my brain? I'm going like, how does that make any sense? But it was part of that indoctrination, that, you know, uh, bringing them into a completely different world. The concept of uh, ratting out your parents if they said something that was kind of revolutionary. Um, that's what they inculcated in these schools and in these youth clubs. So it was very drastic change from the, the family nucleus to the, the explosion of the family and, 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 and even families reporting on each other, much less neighbors. You know, I was going to ask you this, this later, um, if it was appropriate, but um, because you bring it up now, uh, what have you noticed over the, the last 20 years, 25 years, particularly maybe the last five years, six years, seven years uh, about this country and uh, it's um, it getting comfortable with some of those things that you saw in your family saw in Cuba, but seeing that in this country as the, as, as progress, um, how, how do you feel about that? Or do you notice that? I'm sure. Oh, you do. I, absolutely. <laughs> and, and it scares the living daylights out of me yeah. because, um, you know, you hit on something very astute a little while ago that I've echoed several times. We don't know how good we have it in this country. You know, I had a lady that I was talking to a couple of months ago and, and I mentioned that and she says, well, I've been to Mexico. I said, no, ma'am, you were in Cancun on a cruise. There's a difference between going to Mexico and living in Guadalajara than, than you going on a cruise to, to uh, one of the, the, the tourist sites. And that is, you know, it's a blessing. It is a blessing that we're so comfortable that our states are the size of other countries. We have this homogenous, you know, continent that we are buffered by oceans and, 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 uh, and we, we're just spoiled. But when people travel and live overseas, or like in my case, in my parents' case, because, you know, everybody feels for, sorry for Rick. Rick is the luckiest guy in the world. I am the luckiest man in the world. I came to the best country in the world and served it and still trying to serve it, that try to pay back that debt of honor. But you know who paid the price? My mom and dad. They were never the same, especially my mom, because it was a very traumatic period. So I see these trends of socialism, utopia, and let's give everybody, you know, socialism, and, and I've said this before, socialism is the mask that communism wears to lure you into his lair. There is no difference between socialism and, and, it, and it becoming communism. And it's totalitarian, is, is complete control. And one thing that they do say that is true is that everybody is going to be equal, equally be miserable with the exception of the leadership. Mm -hmm. There's a joke in Cuba that if you see a house that has been painted in the last 50 years, that's a senior party member. Yeah. 
That's why I think this is so important for uh, Americans to read right now, particularly those that are in that formative stage in their lives where they're so impressionable um, to have an appreciation for for what we have. Because without books like this, without people like you talking about this uh, and these stories, they just uh, they just go to the next game on their their smartphone or, or their TikTok video or whatever it is. Uh, and meanwhile, we're headed down that path that uh, to giving up these freedoms that so many people died for. And, uh, I mean, you, you, you write about it here in such a powerful way. Um, you say that in school, our teachers told us to watch each other and our families. If we heard anyone saying anything against Castro, we were to report it at once. The new regime weaponized us against our own families in perfect 1984-esque fashion. Around town, every block had a designated official who recorded his neighbor's movements. Ears were always open, listening to the slightest critique of Castro, his revolution, or of Marxism in general. Once reported, those people vanished, taken in the night by the stormtroopers of the 26th of July movement. As a Marxist indoctrination soon dominated every aspect of our lives in school, life back home became a growing nightmare for the middle class. A lot of people in the town had always been jealous of my family's success. We'd endured threats before, but this seemed different. Various revolutionary committees were formed, led by some of the true dregs of our city. Now that they had achieved a level of power they hadn't under a capitalist system, they took revenge on those more successful. Yeah. You, you, can you imagine that when in Cuba, when you, and my, by the way, my wife is Cuban. She went through the same thing. Uh, she's younger and, and she left later. She came out in, uh, in uh, I don't know, 68 or something like that, 69. And, but when you registered yourself for a passport, the Communist Party would show up at your house and inventory every single household item, glasses, silver spurs that my dad had, whatever it was. And when you got on that plane, before you got on that plane to leave Cuba, they would do that, that inventory again. And if there was anything missing, you could not leave. And it was all corruption. They, they were divvying up the prices. And that was one of the reasons my dad could get out because he had a 57 Pontiac that more than one general or captain or whatever the heck they were, uh, uh, you know, wanted or lusted mm -hmm. after. So it, it is, th there's no hiding what communism is. And the fact that socialism is just, it's just the lure. And, and I love that this, you talk about this because this struck me as well. And I hadn't thought about it before. hadn't read it anywhere else before. Um, and it's you looking back, you know, retrospectively on what would have happened maybe had you stayed there another month, another year, another two years, uh, you say your school had been tasked with selecting several of its most promising students to be sent to the Soviet Union for further education. My name was on that list. This would not have been optional. The government would simply put me on a plane to the Soviet Union, whether my parents agreed or not. In the years since, I've often wondered what would have happened to me if we had not received the tip. That's something else that tip I told you to get out of there. Would I have ended up a Marxist too? Would I have joined an intelligence service like Cuba's version of the KGB? Would, I'd like to think not, but the indoctrination those children were subjected to in the Soviet Union transformed most of them into revolutionary Marxists who later held positions of importance in the regime. I mean, wow, you were close to being put on a plane to the Soviet Union for further education. Yeah, the Prado luck holds out. Uh, my <laughs> my uncle was... Uh... Um, my, my godmother's husband, who was my uncle, uh, he, um, he was a socialist. He was a communist, so let's put it that way. But blood is a little thicker 
than, than, than other things. And he felt compelled to tell my dad that my name was on that list. So that, that was what precipitated me leaving even earlier, um, even though they couldn't get out. So, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's incredible. Uh, the whole story is fascinating and you're not even 11 yet. You're, you're not even 10 yet. And this is just the first opening chapter of the book. Um, uh, Bay of Pigs, uh, were you aware of what was going on at that young age or what? Yeah, um, uh, it, it was national news. I was in Cuba for the Bay of Pigs and 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 I, and I knew the area fairly well because we used to go to a beach near there uh, when we couldn't go to Varadero because it was a little further. And uh, so I knew where, you know, Bay of Pigs was. And I also knew um, that this was happening, but not that it was I mean, it wasn't that obvious to me. I know the fights were all going on there. We could hear the planes. We could hear the radio. Um, but that for, again, th- these are all back to back to back cases where, yeah, it pushed my dad into, I got to get him out. Wow. And looking back on that, having studied it now um, as, a, as an adult, um, what, what are your thoughts on, on Bay of Pigs and the political situation at the time? Um, and uh, how, how do you, how do you look at that, uh, that event? Because it is such a seminal event, both in intelligence circles. And then for you personally, having been born in Cuba. Yeah. So definitely affected by both ends, you know, um, the Bay of Pigs was the typical example of what not to do with an intelligence agency. And we're, we're living through it again. And you'll, and I know you've read some of this in there. The worst you can thing that you could do is politicize special operations, mm-hmm. covert operations. Those are have to be separate from political, you know, uh, ambitions or or whatever. Um, the bay, the, the the original plan for the Bay of Pigs attack wasn't in Bay of Pigs. It was in just south of Cienfuegos, which was a town a little further. It was about almost straight south of where I lived, but on the on the on the water side. And the reason that they had picked that, because, again, the Escambray Mountains were there. The Central Highway went right through that town. And also um, the, 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 major, uh, the, the, the major railroad junction. So they felt that if they landed there, and it was a port, if they landed there in force, they could easily take the town over. Um, the air support that Castro enjoyed was going to be neutralized, and some of it didn't. But, but by brave Cubans, not by... Anybody else coming is promised. Um, but that became politically unpalatable because they wanted to make it look like it was an insurrection, not an invasion. So they move it to a mangrove. And that's where we dumped our people at. Um, it, it is, I, I, you know, I've had the honor of meet and work with several real prominent guys who were there that time. One of them, a very good friend of mine named Amado, I won't go into last name. He was 18 years old when he landed in the Bay of Pigs. He was captured. He was traded for medicines. He went on to become a uh, army officer, Green Beret in Vietnam, came out, went to Georgetown, got his advanced degrees, joined CIA and retired as a senior operations officer. Now, you talk about people to look up to. That's humbling. Incredible. Yeah, you've uh, crossed paths with some... uh quite a few characters over the years, quite a few legends over the years. Um, but hey, your story starts out, it was called the Peter Pan program that, the, that put, took people out of Cuba uh, yes. and got them to the United States and then got them to the orphanages while they waited for their families that may or may not ever, ever show up. 
Yeah, the, the Peter Pan program was initially uh, started to try to get the children of the opposition out so they would remain and felt that the kids were safe and then try to do a political. But as the control was exacerbated by, by the events, uh, you know, that became uh, a moot point. And then when the Bay of Pigs happened, it opened up to all any kid that wanted to leave. And I think uh, a little over 4,000 kids were taken out and put in different foster homes or different camps. There were three camps in, in, in South Florida uh, designated as those. I, uh, I don't know if you want to call it the, the short straw or whatever, but I drew the orphanage and uh, I don't regret it. You know, I, I love horses and that's the only thing I could go over there was rodeos. So, um, but it was, it was a culture shop because that orphanage was very mixed. Uh, we had three or four different ethnic, you know, groups in there, cultural groups in there. And turning 11 there was, was no picnic. It was no picnic. I bet. Did you always have hope that you would see your family again? Or, or did you, did you know, Hey, my parents are coming for me and, uh, and you never gave up that hope? No, you know, absolutely. And my, my, look, my dad was a very simple man. My, my dad had a seventh grade education, but he was a great businessman and he was a very strong willed, determined guy. My dad could make a decision on a heartbeat. And, uh, he, he saw the, the, this coming, but he also brought me up as the little man. I mean, you know, this is what a man does. He started brainwashing me to be able to cope with watching my mom and dad, you know, my mom crying, my dad biting his lip as I'm, as I'm getting on this airplane to go to a place I don't even know what it's called. Um, but, but he did that very early on. But the one thing that really clinched it before he got me on that plane, he looked at me and said, I give you my word, I will see you again. That's all I needed. That's all you needed. That's incredible. Incredible. And you do see him again. You see both your parents again. Somehow they track you down, uh, find the paperwork, find out where you are. You're reunited and you start essentially from scratch now in the United States. But now you have opportunity. And, uh, and, and the story is an incredible American success story. Um, and, uh, it, it just highlights what this country does. It gives you, uh, exactly. which is opportunity. And then you get to forge your own path. Um, and you certainly do. And I want to talk to you about reading because, uh, uh, the importance of reading in your life as a young kid, and you're reading the the Ian Fleming, James Bond books, you're reading Tarzan, you're reading books about World War II, and you find out about something called the OSS and Wild Bill Donovan. Uh, and you, so you're reading these books, and that's the influence of popular culture. I had it too, although my formative years were the, were the 80s, but very similar in that this is coming from books, fiction and non. Um, what was the importance of, of those books to you growing up? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, again, um, I, I believe that God puts a path in front of us and we take, have the courage to walk it. Uh, he makes it a little easier for us, no matter how hard it is. And I had on my seventh grade school teacher, Lee Robert Krenz was my English teacher. And he was an avid reader and he infected me with that. Um, so I was reading books, uh, you know, in seventh grade that most kids are, are not you know, looking at comic books. And uh, the, uh, I have three books separate from everything else that I have. And one is Wild Bill Donovan, Teddy Roosevelt, and Wyatt Earp. Those to me are my American, my American historical heroes from, from those different periods and, and very, very similar characters in the sense of uh, their convictions and their courage. 
but yeah, reading became a passion for me. It still is. Um, and didn't make writing the book any easier, but um, that, that, that I honestly believe that that's why this book, I hope, is a success because I want people to get that story. I want parents to, if their kid comes to them and says, daddy, daddy, I want to be a, a CIA operations officer, they don't take him or her to therapy. Mm-hmm. That they understand that it is an honorable profession of men and women, men and women of incredible integrity, hard work, courage, and sacrifice. And, you know, I love the military. I, I was special operations in the military, uh, Air Force Pararescue. I would have not gotten into the agency without, without that ticket. But at the end of the day, we don't get to wear jump wings and CIBs and, and, and Purple Hearts or whatever. Uh, everybody in the agency has the same stupid blue badge, whether you are a GS-6 or an SIS-5. Um, so, you know, recognition um, outside of the agency is not something anybody expects. Yeah. I think that's a draw for uh, a lot of people as well, operating in the shadows. You don't really know too much about it. So for some, that's the draw as it, as it was for you reading these books about World War II and the OSS and thinking about what's going on. But as, as you're growing up, Vietnam starts to, starts to heat up. You're hearing more and more about Vietnam. Um, you want to serve the, your, your country. You go into to the, the, the Air Force pararescue, get this medical training, uh, and then you missed Vietnam. Like you just at the tail end of it and, uh, and, and miss that, that, yeah, right there. And I think, I think you, you reach out to the agency initially, um, right around then, uh, trying to get in and, uh, they say, Hey, we're not hiring anymore. Um, uh, kind of like the military, everybody's trying to figure out what to do in this post Vietnam era. Um, and so you, you continue down the pararescue path for a little bit, you become a firefighter. And then eventually I think you're at a PJ and you work with some agency guys, who call you the with the Cuban PJ, and they yeah. remember you when they need somebody to do some paramilitary work in Central America. Um, how did that all come about? Well, you know, I, I did apply the first time it was in 1974, and of course, this was the the attrition for both the military, but definitely the agency was decimated um, by different, you know, um, uh, political whims. And so they sent me back a real nice letter. You know, uh, I told them, "Hey, I want." I miss Vietnam. I want to do Air America anywhere, have gun, will travel, whatever you need, you know. And uh, they said, we're we're actually firing, not hiring. That's pretty much <laughs> what they told me. I tried again. I, I don't, I'm 79, early 80. I, I tried again. And this time they called me in because they needed um, medics. They needed guys like pararescuemen that would work with Special Activities Division, which is our special forces or special operations forces of the agency. And uh, that's where I met the ground branch guys and, and some of these folks, um, they were not still not hiring. So I said, guys, I'm not going to lose my paramedic credentials to come over here, you know, every 30 days of work a week. Uh, so I pulled the plug on that. But then when the Sandinistas declared themselves communists and started fomenting uh, communism throughout Latin America as surrogates of the Cubans, surrogates of the, the Russian, the Soviet Union, uh, they the agency did not have a single native, uh, Spanish speaking guy with paramilitary background. And they're going like, who was that Cuban kid? Do you remember the PJ? Cause I was the first pararescue when they ever saw in that building. And, um, the less, the rest is history. I got dragged into it. And my only question to them was, is this long-term or another short-term? And when they said long-term, I said, I'm in. 
And they asked me, do you want to know what it is? I said, I don't care. Yeah. yeah. I love, I love this story. And then, cause now we're into my formative years, Reagan has become president. Things are shifting. Obviously there's a focus on uh, Soviet via Cuba uh, influence in, uh, and sometimes not even via Cuba in, uh, in central South America. And you find yourselves on the front lines, essentially alone and unafraid. I mean, the things I was seeing in a newspaper and in Time Magazine and Newsweek, where I'm getting little snippets of things going on down there, and I'm already into special operations, I'm studying Vietnam, I'm reading these different works of fiction where people had backgrounds in Vietnam as either Army Special Forces or Navy SEALs or Marine snipers or uh, CIA paramilitary people. But so I'm in this phase where I'm intently focused on what's happening in Central South America, because that's what I'm thinking, hey, this is going to be the Vietnam for me, for my generation, because I'm so I'm eight, nine, 10 time frame. Um, and uh, obviously things progressed uh, to different areas of the world after that. But you are in the thick of it. In the time when I'm reading those articles and imagining what's going on down there, studying intelligence services as a young kid, wanting to go that route into the, the military, into special operations, you're on the ground essentially by yourself. And you have like a Browning high power, you have a knife, you carry a grenade, which I love, by the way, because I always had one on my belt in Iraq and Afghanistan. Also, even when I took my body armor off and everything else and would go to different meetings, it was pistol and I had that had that grenade. So I loved seeing that picture, by the way. Uh, you have a backup pistol, I think, on your ankle that no one knew about. And you're going to these camps. I mean, you fly, I think you fly into uh, to Honduras and you go to the border and you start getting, figuring out the lay of the land. Um, what did they tell you before they put you on that plane? And what was your, what was your mission going you know, in? And was it what funny. you, when you landed, was yeah. it what you thought? It, it was, it, first of all, it was, it was probably arguably my, my best tour. Uh, and I, I had nothing but great tours, but this one was very visceral. You know, um, here was the same monster that consumed my first country and my family. And now I am in a, having an opportunity to help these people that are actually fighting it. So, um, I, I, I was in the agency for about a week before they sent me down. I had no training other than what I had received in pararescue. And, uh, and of course my Spanish was decent enough that I could, you know, pull off being a Honduran uh, captain and then a major. And, uh, so I spent three and a quarter years almost uh, living in the camps. And from Monday through Friday, I slept in a jungle hammock. Uh, but when I first started, we didn't even have helicopters. There was five people in that program. And I was the only agency officer for the first 14 months that was allowed to set foot in the camps because, again, it was covert action. That's where the shadows comes in. We had to keep, you know, that deniability of the American hand. That changed little by little. And then we had, you know, 100 guys out there. But uh, for me, it was such a rewarding thing because not only am I training these people, uh, not only am I, you know, giving giving them intelligence and 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 they're bringing back their intelligence, but I sat every single night. I would grab a cup of coffee and I would sit with a different group of peasant fighters, freedom fighters, mm -hmm. and I would ask them, "Why are you here?" Not one said I read Marx and Lenin and I disagree with the. Uh, everything was personal. Mm -hmm. They had burned their churches. They had stolen their cattle. They had raped their daughter. They had conscripted, forced conscription of their 15-year-old son. They were all there fighting for the same thing that my dad threw me on an airplane to obtain, and that was freedom. So imagine the satisfaction for me that now 
I'm actually cutting off some of the tentacles of this communist octopus uh, in a completely different uh, area. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. The story is so incredible and you can tell reading it that it's so intensely personal for you for the reasons that you, you just outlined. Um, but also you're adapting down there and there's a story and I want people to read it because, um, if you hadn't done a sing, uh, this single act of kindness to one person in the camp, he wouldn't have tipped you off later that you were targeted for assassination and you might not be here today. You know, that is recruitment 101. And uh, I had not had any training, but I was a street kid. I I, kind of knew the the ropes of, you know, hustling and being on the street. And this young man came to me a few months before his wife was ill and he needed some money to get the the right medicine. And I gave him the equivalent of 20 bucks, which back then was a lot of money to him. And he's the one that told me that because I had done a rendition on their commander, who was a real scumbag, Mm -hmm. I had actually physically forced him to come back that they were going to try to kill me. And I've used that even in the agency as, as a, you know, Hey, that little guy out there that you may want to take for granted may Mm -hmm. not be the person you want to take for granted. I honestly don't think that I would have survived uh, an attack because it was avoidance. I didn't confront them. I I Mm -hmm. literally, well, you read it. I I escaped and staged in a mountain and we were up all night waiting for them to come and get us. But if it hadn't been for that, they would have, I would have been totally surprised because I was, for the most part, surrounded by people that I that I knew and trusted. Yeah, you would have been asleep at the time, and I mean, it's it's an, an absolutely incredible story. The whole the whole thing, um, but uh, there's all there's the, what also surprised me. I mean, there were so many amazing things in here um, that the commander suicide and the Argentinians, like Argentina. I didn't realize um, that we were working through Argentina for a lot of this, and you know, once I knew that I could, uh, I could deduce that there was going to be some corruption in that system. Um, but, uh, but it, it, it actually gave me some ideas for, for, for my books kind of to weave in there. Um, but what was the, the commander suicide and the, and Argentina's role in what was going on down there? You know, um, commander suicide, Suicida was, uh, the only non-commissioned officer that ran a camp mm. and he was a wonderful friend and he was the most loyal, brave, um, not a somosista, you know, that, that's all, you know, media hype. Um, the greater majority of these guys were just there for, for, for all the right reasons. And he, his was my favorite camp because these guys, we would do things together. Plus we got in our, again, my first firefighter in Nicaragua was arriving on this camp, but we got lit up like a Christmas tree and payback for mortars. So we, we won that one, but uh, he uh, got sideways with the Argentines and the Argentines were there to broker. They were the first ones to help the countries uh, before we got involved. And uh, but when I say help the countries, is they facilitated a few things. There was a presence there in in uh, Tegucigalpa of probably twelve or fifteen Argentines, and um, these were not warriors. These were not you know. Uh, these were part of the 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 police that in Argentina at the time, they were the stormtroopers, like you mentioned earlier, of the 26th July uh, um, movement. That kind of individual, if you were against the regime, they would knock your door down and take you and you'd never see your father again. So that's what they bragged about. That was their call to fame was being that kind of thuggy. Um, So I was very, very happy when they put me in charge of keeping them straight. And eventually they got caught, you know, um, badly you know, with, with the malfeasance that was there, the corruption. 
they were a very negative uh, part of, of the equation. And I'm glad that it was removed very early on, very early on. Yeah. I mean, the story is amazing. And then uh, I'd, I'd read about the mosquitoes before. Is that how you say it? Mosquito. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but um, uh, I'd read about them before. But uh, but you had a uh, an affinity for this for this group, and they ended up being great divers. And you do a, and it could, of course, being a former SEAL myself, I, I I started reading about the dive op that you guys did, or the couple of dive ops that you guys did. Um, and uh, what, can you talk us about the mosquitoes and how that what uh, what they meant to you? Yeah, you know, it's funny because another another form of reading that I love was the history of Native Americans. I always had a an unknown attraction to Native Americans. I thought that there was a certain purity about, you know, uh, their their you know, their melding with nature and, and everything that they that they held dear. And uh, so when I got to the Mosquitia, um meeting these, they, they're most they're Native Americans, they're Native Americans of that area mixed with a lot of black slaves that were shipwrecked in the area during the Spanish and the, and the English and all that other stuff. And they're, they're autonomous. They want, they want to be autonomous completely. And that has never worked out for them. But, you know, at the time I didn't catch on, but my fascination was also curiosity because dealing with the Spaniards, as we call them, you know, as they call them uh, of, of, of Nicaragua, there was very little culture shock for me. I spoke the language. I knew most of the customs. Yeah, there was a few words I had to learn. But for the most part, it was, when I went to the Mosquitia, they, they barely speak Spanish. There's three tribes, Mosquito, Sumo, and Rama. Mm. And they have their own dialect. Uh, they speak, many of them speak better English than they do Spanish. So for me, there was actual culture shock. And, and uh, I'll, I'll never forget one of the times that uh, after reading so many Edgar Rice Burroughs books. Uh, I'm on the uh, on the on the base of a of a uh, of a river, and there's a tree about 75 yards away, and I'm teaching them how to shoot fire in RPG seven anti anti tank missiles. So I put cardboard behind us so they could see what the back blast did and all this other stuff. And they're they're at the ridge looking down at me at the riverbed, and I fired that thing, and it hit the tree, and it splintered the tree up. And I turn around and these guys are like this. They're dancing. They're, they got no shirts on. They got ripped off shorts. I felt I was in Africa. It was the most exhilarating uh, early memory of, of that whole thing. And they, I mean, they were, they were born fighters. These guys were born fighters. I mean, they were hunters. They were trackers. That was their way of life. So converting that into guerrilla warfare, as you know better than I do, uh, it's, it's, it's a great founding. It's a great yeah. founder. They became my favorite. Um, and we did some good ops with them. Yeah. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. I want people to read about those dive ops and uh, some that went well, some that didn't. Um, and uh, it, it, it's also so fascinating. We also touch base. You, you start meeting now people in, in the agency that passed through and um, uh, talk about Colonel Ray. What was his uh, influence on you? Yeah. C- Colonel Ray was my first boss and arguably the best boss I ever had. He was bigger than life physically and in, 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 in reputation. Uh, Colonel Ray jumped into Corregidor at the age of 18. Uh, then he was Green Beret, uh, one of our guys in the, the Lao, the Laotian uh, part of the program. And um, he was a GS-15, our a, a colonel equivalent. And he was just a wonderful boss. And he's the one that from the very beginning started grooming me and teaching me because I had, again, I had no training other than my street smarts. And of course my pararescue stuff. 
And uh, he was a wonderful man. And I'm very proud to say that I stayed in touch with him until the day he passed away. Yeah. Incredible. Um, and then there's a, a great story where you meet Bill Casey who flies down to Honduras. And uh, I don't think you knew he was coming cause it's uh, maybe somebody was coming, but maybe not him. And he tells you something really cool about the work that you've been doing and what you've been sending back. Um, what was that about? Yeah, I, I had no idea of anything. I was at the camps and uh, we, we were used one time pads this way before your time. But that's how we communicated by radio one time pads. And I got a message from Colonel Ray saying, get your butt back to through the command. And I said, OK, so I make it back to uh, to to the command. I was in the Mosquitia. I was in, in uh, one of the, uh, the Spaniard camps. And by then, by at that time, we were still going by truck. So literally the next day I show up smelling like, you know what, you've been there. And uh, I walk in and he, Colonel Ray says, he says, um, I want you, I'm going to introduce you to our director. Now, you got to understand, I was a GS-10. Okay. okay. So you have a GS-10 that is going to meet the director of the Central Intelligence Agency and a guy like Bill Casey, which I knew of the kind of person he was because of the OSS. He was actually an, o, an OSS veteran. So, but when I walked into the room, the first character that jumped out was Dewey Claridge. And Dewey became a big mentor of mine throughout his career. And even afterwards, we, you know, we were friends until the day he passed. And here he is, he's got this smart vest, his old press, his, his boots are pristine. And he's got this, you know, two dollar, you know, expensive cigar in his mouth. And he's, you know, and he's the one that introduces me to uh, Bill Casey. And Bill Casey looked at me. Oh, and um, Dewey said to him, says, well, Mr. Director, this is Alex. That was my alias there. This is Captain Alex. He's your man at the camps. That became my moniker for the rest of the time there. And he looked at me and he said, um, young man, I just want to thank you because all these photographs that you're sending me, I keep them on my desk. And every time somebody tries to argue about our, our supporting this, I beat them over the head with them. Keep them coming. You know, I was I was walking on air. You know, you talk about pinching yourself. And then I had the honor of uh, being his interpreter uh, in a meeting that included the Argentines. Mm. And they were kind of making fun of him and he ate him up for lunch. I mean, he just he was a brilliant, brilliant old guy that uh, I, I would say he is the greatest. DCI that we that we had a director of central intelligence, um, Bill Donovan. If he would have been a, a DCI, he would have been equally impressive. But um, I don't think there was anybody before him or after him that came even close. Yeah, I mean these old uh, you know World War II veteran cold warriors. There's something about those guys with the the touch points with the OSS and I mean so much history and just oh, I mean yeah. Uh, about Dewey Claridge. So he, uh, so you mentioned him, what was his, what was his background and what was his, uh, impact on you? Dewey was a, a bigger than life individual. Uh, Dewey wore Brioni suits and he had the handkerchief coming out of his, <laughs> very, uh, very polished, very educated, but totally fearless politically and physically. He took crap from nobody. Mm -hmm. And he was Bill Casey's pit bull. That's what they call him. He was a, a, a Casey's pit bull. And he's the one that started our counterterrorist center. That was his idea. In 1986, he started it from a minuscule point at that time. He started our counterterrorist center to try to globalize the effort of, of terrorism. So he was brilliant, uh, very senior, a division chief several times and that kind of stuff. Uh, but what I loved about him, about he was 
a real person. Uh, even with all his extravagant persona, he remembered everybody's name that mattered to him. Mm. Uh, he never backed off a fight. Uh, if you were right, he would back you. Uh, and you know, to this day, he's one of my heroes. Yeah. Amazing. And you mentioned how he dressed and what I, in the book, what I loved is you talking about, I think it was your mom that, uh, gave you this, uh, passed on, uh, this sense of, uh, of style. And I, then I got to the photo section of the book and then I saw it. So I read about it earlier on and then I got to the photos. I'm like, Oh, this is what he's talking about. And you were a sharp dresser. Like that was, that was serious. There's some amazing pictures in there. Yeah, that, that you know, my we you know we are the, the product of our parents if if we're lucky. And my, and my dad, from my dad, I got that. I'm not as stoic as he is mm. was. I'm sorry because I lost him a few years ago. As stoic as he was, um, but his strength of character and his conviction um, is something that I learned a lot from. My mom was the reader. My mom was the one that even though she worked in a sweatshop. She always saved enough money so her hair could be coiffed and her nails could be done. And she wanted to make sure that I was always clean and, and, and dressing. And, and uh, so th that was a pretty good yin and yang balance, you know, mm -hmm. the diamond in the rough kind of getting a little bit of a velvet cover on him kind of thing. Um, and I'm very proud of that till this day. I can, you know, like I said, I, I, I lived in a, in, in a jungle hammock for three and, and a quarter years, never complained because I was happy, but I've also recruited generals and diplomats all over the world at uh, receptions wearing a tuxedo. So yeah. Uh, oh, and your, your author photo, even your author photo, I was like, dang, this guy can dress. Like it's uh, I'm like, man, still to this day, uh, it's fantastic. Um, but uh, you know, you, you write something here about your time in, uh, in Central America. And, uh, and it's something I think that you, you probably knew from before and you brought to the agency, but you write, treat people well but make it clear you're doing so from a position of strength. And I think that's something you brought to, you already had that. You didn't learn that down there. I don't. Think. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I grew up with, um, for most practical purposes, the wrong crowd, but the wrong crowd also has a certain ethic to it. a certain um, forging that you have to be loyal. You have to be who you say you are. You have to be credible. And um, when we transitioned from the Cold War, the Cold War never went away, guys. That's BS. The Cold War has been ongoing for all of us, nonetheless. But the attention uh, getting part of it was terrorism. Mm. And when we shifted gears to start focusing on terrorism and counter-narcotics, which, again, is something we helped a lot with. A lot of people don't understand that we work very closely with DEA at the strategic level, of course. Um, it, it was it was a way of of learning a new craft because now you're not meeting diplomats, you're not meeting businessmen, you're not meeting local politicians, you're meeting people from the shady side of the business. Mm -hmm. And the advantage that I have is that I could sit across the table from one of these guys and look them in the eye, and they knew that if they bit me, I was going to bite back. I may not win, but I was going to bite them back. And this was a, a, a huge a bump up for our special activities division folks, because the paramilitary type of guys, the guys who had, had the medical, medical, I mean, the military training like you yourself have, they came in with a certain grittiness that our very bright, very brave college kids had yet to learn. They could sit across the table and knew that they'd been there and done that and they were still able to do it again. 
And in that world, that was very important, getting getting that respect up front. And not just from the terrorists or the bad guys, but a lot of the cops that you work with in military that are extremely aggressive because they're fighting for their lives. Uh, they got to understand that uh, you, you're serious and you're there for them. But uh, it, we're, we're equals. We're equals in the sense of respect and, and, and conviction. And eventually you're, you're spending that you're, you're down there, you're in these camps, um, incredible story, but eventually you get word that, uh, it's, it's time to go to the farm or you're offered a position to now become a case officer, uh, and, and go that route. Um, where were we, when you, uh, when you found that out, how did that, how did you get that class update and start work at the farm, start training at the farm? Um, and what did you take from that experience in Central America with you throughout the rest of your time in the agency? Yeah, again, uh, I think that we're, our metal is forged along the way. And, and the Nicaraguan experience was, was extremely important to me. Um, when my tour was over, like I said, I did a little over three years there. Um, Colonel Ray wanted me to get home base in Special Activities Division. And uh, he was getting a little bit of pushback. Well, yeah, let's bring him back. And, and he said, no. So he called Dewey Claridge. And he said, Dewey, Prado is coming out. He needs this. So he picked up the phone. He called the chief of SA Special Activities Division and said, you got two hours to home base him or I'm taking him to Latin America Division. So they home base me in, in, in the, uh, the paramilitary side, which I was very happy with because that, that was my, my, my crowd. And uh, I needed to finish my college. So they sponsored me for a year. Uh, so I did two years of college in one year, graduated with uh, distinction and went into the farm. And both at the college and at the farm, I had something a lot of the guys did not have. Uh, one of my classmates, Henry, uh, I call him Tokayo, uh, he was a Vietnam vet, Green Beret, shot, you know, the whole nine yards. And uh, but the majority of the other young people did not understand, you know, that, that grittiness of having lived with the Contras. And, and the same thing in college, when, um, when, when I was taking my night classes, the, uh, the students would come out at break and say, Rick, we're so glad you're here. Because I was sparring with, uh, with, with very liberal instructors. I went to George Mason University, and, uh, which is a good school, and I loved it. But I had a couple of teachers, and, and the one teacher that became my biggest supporter and, and actually you know, recommended my graduation and everything else and read my thesis, um, she and I never agreed on a single thing, mm. ever, because she was, you know, left of Lenin, yeah. <laughs> but she appreciated my arguments mm. and she also appreciated that I always challenged her respectfully and we sparred, but we sparred in, in, in a very positive way. So in, in both occasions, both at the, at the college and at the farm, that historical background, um, even though I couldn't say that I had been in Nicaragua, but the fact that I lived it in Cuba and that I had read and, and everything else gave me a lot of, uh, a little extra traction. Oh, wow. So what you did was still classified. Did they know that you were coming from the paramilitary side of the house or, any, or they just thought you were just out of college? I was, I was, I was DOD uh, uh, no contractor or some BS cover. Yeah. Wow. So you're doing out at the farm, you're doing the SDRs, you're learning about that sort of a thing. You're doing your, your scenarios of recruitment and, and all that. And you get to do, do they still have the, uh, uh, what do they call it? Crash and bang. And you're doing the driving and doing that sort of, sort of thing. Um, so you go through the whole experience. Yeah. The, the only thing that I did not go through was the paramilitary training that the, the regular mm, students okay. did because I already had that. 
So guys like Henry and myself were prior service in, in prior agency. We were already in the agency. We were mm-hmm. uh, now being professionalized. So that, that was a little different. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it came from the blunt object mentality to now want to finesse. And, and again, I think that this is where that growing up with both sides of that yin and yang in my family uh, allowed me to uh, dress up and, and uh, work an alias and, and recruit highly educated senior government officials um, while at the same time sitting in a back room in a safe house and uh, reading somebody the riot act. So, yeah. Man, and they, and you graduate and do they, you go right back to, to Central America. Is that where you head? Yeah. I was supposed to go to El Salvador mm. and, and um, that was my, my household goods. I had just gotten married in Honduras with my wife who's Cuban and uh, we had met in Miami but uh, when we, our household goods were already in El Salvador, when this chief of station in Costa Rica, who had met me up in the Contra days, said, I want Prada. So I got called into the division chief. And this happened twice in my career where the division chief calls me in and says, somebody wants you to go where you're not, you know, assigned to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I never blinked an eye. I, it, for me, it was a little bit shocking because the reputation of the Southern front of the, of the Contra program was heavily tainted with former Sandinistas. And there was a lot of infiltration. Costa Rica wasn't Honduras. That was very supportive. On the contrary, they were actually hunting my guys down and, and I had to avoid being. So I went from in uniform, carrying a car 15 and a Browning high power and a grenade in my pocket, like you mentioned, and my backup Walter in my, in my uh, PPK and my ankle uh, to literally doing French resistance kind of stuff that we're having meetings in vans and picking these people up covertly and try to, you know, exfiltrate them out through maritime means so they could go and, and, and get the military training that they needed. So uh, it was huge contrast, but it was also a, a, another growth period. You know, again, now I am gone from the paramilitary to the training. Now I am in Colton Thai working out of an embassy as a diplomat and doing my snooping and pooping and, you know, on the side. So uh, pretty, 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 pretty fun. And, and what is the, what is the Soviet influence like down there at the time? And um, was there a difference that you noticed between your time working directly with the Contras in those camps and then what you ended up doing more as a, as a case officer? Yeah. Uh, because again, you know, the, the, the Southern front was uh, primarily former Sandinistas that had had a change of mind under Comandante Cero, uh, Eden Pastora. And, um, uh, but I will tell you, uh, there there's several commanders. One in particular, I call him, his, his, his uh, nom de guerre was Ganso, the geese, the goose. And he was the best commander we had. In the, to this day, we, we're, we're friends. We stay in touch. Um, so they had some really good people. But we also knew that they had been infiltrated by the Sandinistas uh, and that there was a lot of reporting. And again, the problem was the Costa Ricans were actually afraid of the Nicaraguans and they wanted to remain neutral. They're, they're remaining neutral, man, putting our guys in jail and then throw them out and, yeah. and throwing them back into Nicaragua. So um, they, there was a lot of uh, interesting stuff going on. And, and uh, you know, the, the rush, the, the communization of Costa Rica was there. There was parties that were growing, and which was great because it allowed the more conservative folks in that country to be willing to help a guy like me mm. exfiltrate these guys through their farm or out of a, on their boat back to a safe haven where they can go and get some training. So it was, uh, 
stark contrast. Uh, and we had some great successes there too. Incredible. And where do you first hear the term, what would become known as Iran-Contra? Uh, are you working at the time? Are you in the farm at the time? Yeah. Where, where are you when you, when you hear well, that I term was, for the I first was, time? I, I was in Costa Rica and, um, this was all the whole Iran-Contra became a little later, but the incident that 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 was the tipping point was when Hassenfuss was shot down and was the only survivor on a plane, and that was a, a resupply flight flight for for uh, for the FDN, the Northern Contras that were gone that far south. Okay. It wasn't a drop to my guys, but my radio operator called me out our secure uh, phones and said uh, on radio, and he said. You need to come in. There's a plane down. So I went straight to the place and they told me, he said, this, I, I said, why didn't I know of this, of, of this airdrop? He says, it isn't for us. It isn't for us. It's for the other. It was for uh, um, uh, another commander. So I immediately gave out the order. I said, I want every able body guy to start combing north and get this guy and, and bring him back. Whoever, any survivors, bring him back and, 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 uh, and protect them. Well, unfortunately, Hassan Fuss uh, decided he wasn't going to go anywhere. He stayed right there by the wreck, um, pitched a hammock out of his parachute, and he had all kinds of incriminating stuff on him, phone numbers, names, all kinds of stuff that became uh, uh, a big deal for the Sandinistas to showcase. And that began the, the investigations. And subsequently, you know, the actual Iran-Contra uh, scandal came out. I was dragged into as a GS-12 into the grand jury. Oh, wow. Uh, not, as a, not as a subject, but as a witness, which was kind of fun because I could, you know, just because you ask me a question doesn't mean I have to answer it in the way that you expect it. So I got to be able to tell the guys what I saw, what, you know, how, how badly these resources were needed. Mm. And the fact that I had documented every single airdrop that we had given to our folks for resupply. Wow. I mean, at least it's incredible this touch points with history that you have over your, your time in uniform or not in uniform, your time in the agency is uh, I mean, it's astounding. Um, and then uh, they send you to the Philippines. So uh, is that is well, obviously you're, you, you have all this time in, in Central America, this expertise, this language, uh, the relationships. Um, why do they move you to the, to the Philippines? Is it career development type of a thing or does someone that, you know, Hey, we need this guy. He's a solid operator, grab him and put him where we need him right now. I think it was a combination. Um, first of all, I have shown I, I've always been fascinated with 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 uh, Asia. I you know because of the martial arts early on, and to me, Japan and all that area there was always a mystery. And but it was it was one of my uh, it was the chief of ground branch at the time uh, who called me in and he said, "Look, we have a a, a slot for a paramilitary officer uh, first in 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 a, in a South American country." Uh, and then the same thing happened in, in the Philippines. We have a spot. We need bona fide case officers who have paramilitary skills to start filling these jobs because that's the future. We need to be real dual track. Mm -hmm. They call them dual track case officers. So for me, it was a win-win. I got to go to Asia. And again, I like growth. I like challenge. Mm -hmm. And now I'm dealing with a new culture, very different than my Latin America years. So uh, it was very rewarding. It was very hairy. Um, the uh, the Philippines at the time, I, I got there about six months after Nick Rowe, Colonel Nick Rowe was assassinated. I can ask you about uh, that. A very, very freak way. Um, so 
you know, the MPA, the New People's Army, was in Manila. Mm. And of course, we had the Abu Sayyaf growing in, in the Mindanao area, which uh, I, we, we tackled both. So there were there's uh, in the books, there's a couple of close scrapes yeah. there where, uh, you know, and the, it taught me really early on that awareness beats fast draw anytime. There you go. Yeah. yeah. I love how you pay tribute to Jeff Cooper and the, the color system that he came up with and training and, uh, and all of that in the book. Um, so you spend your time in the Philippines. I spent a little time there, uh, there myself, fascinating place, obviously with a incredible history. Um, but then they pick you up again and now you're focused on Korea. Like what yeah. is, uh, what, when you get picked up and you, you're, you're first out of Central America, boom, now you're in the Philippines. Now you're out of the Philippines. Now you're focused on, on Korea. What is the, uh, what is, what is the, the, the training that they give you or that you do yourself to prepare yourself for what you're about to, to step into? Are there, there are turnovers with people or are you miss, are they just out and you're in? How does that, uh, how does that work? Well, it, 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 it was a little more complicated than that because what happened was I was in the Philippines when uh, the then East Asia Division Chief, uh, Jack Downing, a very dear friend and mentor, uh, was visiting and we're sitting at a dinner and I'm sitting to his left and the chief of station is telling, you know, Prado's doing a bang up job. He did this and he did that. And he, he, you know, he managed this or whatever. And uh, Jack, I was still home based in, in ground branch and Jack Downing looked at me. He says, uh, when are you going to get a real job? I said, sir. He goes, yeah. When are you going to come to a real area division? I said, I, I don't know, sir. What do I have to do? And he looked at me, he says, you just did it. Two days later, I was home based in East Asia Division. Um, you know, my time in Ground Branch had been done. I was already getting a little older. I was a GS-14. Uh, I knew that I wasn't going to be going to the camps in Nicaragua or something mm. like that. And, and I wanted to follow the other kind of action. So, But I actually wasn't going to Korea. Mm. I was going to another place that I cannot mention. And I spent 14 months wow. learning that language. And similar to what happened in Costa Rica, the chief of station in Seoul said, I want Prado. So the division chief calls me in and he says, look, I, this is not binding. You know, I, I know you're going to turn it down. Um, but when the chief of station asked for something, we got, we got it, we got to follow through. And he told me, uh, you know, who he was and all this other stuff. And he had a pretty rough re reputation and um, which I, I have like you, I don't have a problem dealing with, you know, rough, rough reputations. That's, that's where we're surrounded by most of the time. So uh, he, uh, I go in there and I, and I said, well, sir, I, I have one question. Can you tell me what the job is all about? And he says, no. And I said, I'll take it. <laughs> I love it. Because with my clearance is X, Y, Z after, uh, you know, uh, if, if it's something you can't tell me up front, mm. that's the kind of stuff that I want to do. And it was a very, very rewarding assignment for me. Completely different. This was international tradecraft. Uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. A lot, and again, a lot of growth. And it got that. me my GS 15. I got my 15 when I left there. Which has some other repercussions. Uh, but I love that they tell you, Hey, we can't tell you what we're going to be doing. And you say, I'm in, I love it. I love it. So the game. Um, but you, so eventually here you're doing this and then you make GS 15 and there's something that has been started up a few years prior, the, uh, the CTC, the counterterrorism center. Um, and is, is that, what is your path? then into that uh, part of the agency? Well, my, my first CTC assignment was 86, I'm sorry, 88 through 90 okay. in the Southern South, South American country where I literally recruited a terrorist and, and ran several big operations down there. Um, so I always had a, an affinity for that. Mm -hmm. 
And I had put in to go back to CTC when I was leaving Korea. So they gave me a branch. I was the head of the Palestinian branch, which was a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but about two months into my tenure, I got called in and um, my uh, he was the, the chief of operations, which I eventually became myself five, six times removed. Uh, he called me in and he said, uh, your name has been surfaced to be the deputy chief of station on a task force, a uh, special task force that's going to be called a, a, an issue station. And, you know, w- are you interested? I said, of course, I'm the deputy chief of station. Are you kidding? And I said, uh, sir, uh, who, who are we targeting? He said, Osama bin Laden. I said, who? And he said, exactly. Mike Shoyer was the chief. He was an analyst. So I was the senior ops officer and the deputy. And uh, he knew all about bin Laden. And that became the passion for me for, for quite a while after that. And, you know, this is as a former SEAL. Um, yes, the SEALs shot bin Laden. But we found him. And it was the same little nucleus that umpteen years later, through sleuthhound work and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of digging, were able to geolocate him and, and, and target him. And then your brethren went in there and did a hell of a good job. But uh, that, that was, again, a, a big, big change for me because now I'm dealing with not Latin American terrorism, not East Asia terrorism, uh, like in the Philippines. I am dealing with radical Muslim kind of, of terrorism of what we saw in Afghanistan and in the rest of the Middle East. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a good ride. And is that, is that Alex Station when you step into that? Is, so it's already right. Alex Station. And uh, I noticed that there is quite, uh, when you talk about those redactions you talked about earlier, there, uh, there are a few around, around this section, uh, especially we're talking about Billy Waugh and what he was doing down there. And I wanted to ask you about Executive Order uh, 11905 signed by Gerald Ford and what that meant to you guys when you possibly could have removed bin Laden from the battlefield uh, before what transpired on September 11th, 2001 eventually did. Yeah. You know, again, we, we all benefit from the 2020 hindsight. Uh, we all have that uh, ability, but um, you know, the agency has title 50 authorities that can include lethal findings. Like after 9, 11, 17 September, um, president Bush signed the lethal finding of going after Al Qaeda and, and uh, the Taliban. So you cannot be the premier service to the most powerful country in the world and not have that capability in your toolbox. And I'm not talking about just killing people. I'm talking about being able to disrupt major, you know, events if you have the, the groundwork done. So um, that, that whole era was, um, I mean, of course, which has led to, to 9-11 and everything else. But Bin Laden in, in 1996, when we started uh, the, the, uh, the, the task force, late 95, early 96, by mid to late uh, 96, we had, we, we, we had made bit book on him. Billy Waugh, who's t- just talked to him yesterday. Oh, yeah. My friends, he's 92 years old. 92. Eight uh, purple hearts. God. Yep. Uh, and uh, he, uh, I, I just talked to him yesterday. We were coming back on a car and I, was, I had to give him a call. But Billy was literally in charge of surveillance of bad guys in Khartoum. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, if you've read his book, but I he's the, the jackal. Actor. He captured the jackal. He's the one that identified, put glass on him and, and uh, triangulated him and had him coming and going that we were able to hand him over to the French. 
but he was also doing Bin Laden. And he used to run by Bin Laden's place. I remember. Of the guys, you know, and he told me one day, he told me, he says, Rick, he says, I was so close to him one time when he was coming out in his Mercedes, driving it himself. I could have killed him with a pencil. I never forgot that because Billy could kill you with a pencil. Wow. <laughs> Legend. Yeah. For those who don't know who Billy Wall is, uh, put it in the, the Google, Google it Google. Uh, and then get his book That's as well. Billy Wall. And yeah. uh, I, I mean, I distinctly remember reading that book. I think I was in Iraq at the time when I read it, uh, maybe around 2005 or so. Anyway, whenever that, whenever it came out, I read it. And uh, cool. oh, I remember that him jogging and him talking about the, the walls. I, I, mean, I haven't read it since then. I've only read it that one time, but that stood out to me. Uh, how close he was and how he saw this guy almost every he, day. On we, we, he had him coming and going. He knew. Uh, and of course, being with his background, he had evaluated the, the resistance, what we could get away with. And he was adamant that, look, at the very least, we could render this guy with minimum bloodshed. Mm -hmm. If we send in the right team uh, in there, it'd be easy day. Um, but again, the political fortitude wasn't there. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, we would have avoided uh, a lot of heartbreak and a lot of blood. I imagine how history would be would be different if uh, he'd been Very removed so. from the uh, from the equation back then. Um, yeah, I know. So, yeah, there's a lot of redactions in the Jihad Factory chapter. Uh, and then I wanted to ask you about Tombstone Rules. I love the the title, of course, of that chapter. And then Shangri La and your experiences there. Yeah, Shangri La was a uh, radical Muslim country in in Africa, and I'm, I'm not allowed to say the name, so that's why we call it Shangri La. And we were sent there. It was strictly a, a counterterrorism uh, unit that I had put together. Um, we had gone through one of our black sites training with guys from your, uh, you know, your generation. Steve Bailey was a force master chief uh, for SEAL Team Three, uh, SEAL Team One. I'm sorry, um, is to this day one of my closest friends. So he was one. I brought him to the agency that he was training us. So we had a pretty sharp bunch of guys. Um, you know, former uh, combat veterans, rangers from Mogadishu and all this kind of stuff. And our job was trying to pinpoint uh, where the terrorists were, because Khartoum at the time was a hotel for terrorists. Mm -hmm. If you were willing to pay the price, they would you had safe haven. So that's where Carlos was there. There were Hezbollah folks there. There was all kind. And of course, Bin Laden, who was pumping millions and millions of dollars into the economy, building roads and terrorist camps. So. We were there post Bin Laden, but pretty much trying to, again, make book on some of these guys. We would get intercept information, you know, a house near this place that has a blue car in front of it. Then we go check it out, get the license plate, that kind of process. So but that was that was uh, again, this is a most you know 99 percent black area. Uh, I had one black officer that that was in and out, but the rest were tragically white guys. And but we had masks and disguises that mm -hmm. we could pass at least you know mm -hmm. casual if they saw you driving down on a thin-skinned vehicle non-diplomatic mm -hmm. you just looked like another african mm -hmm. and uh that's how we went into some of these really nasty neighborhoods and did geolocation for for some of these guys for if the future we're gonna need them so yeah i, mean, I had a lot of fun there what a run i mean it's just incredible everything that you that you did and then where were you on uh, on september 11th I was chief of ops at the counterterrorist center. I had just taken over. I had come out of, of Shangri-La in May of 2001. And uh, yeah, late May of 2001. And when 9-11 happened, I was chief of ops there. And obviously, you know, all our lives changed um, at that moment. And everybody knows where they were at when 9-11 happened. 
Uh, were you physically in the in the building, or how did that? How did you get word that something had happened? Oh no, I I, I was actually in front of the office waiting for Kofer to clear, and for Ben Bonk as deputy to come back. Uh, like I said, I was his chief of ops, and I was talking to the secretaries, and the, the TV was on, and we see this plane hit the building. And at first, I thought it was a Cessna or something like that. I said, "That yeah, looked like a small plane. God, that's a weird accident." But you know, and um, we're all fixated on the TV and. CTC at the time, uh, well, the CTC creation was bringing in just about every federal agency and home basing it there. So we had DS folks, we had FBI folks, we had Secret Service folks, we had all kinds of people from, and we had an FAA guy in, in, the, in, in, the, in the unit. And he came out and said, Mr. Prado, um, we got an issue. And I say, yeah, okay, I saw the plane. He goes, no, no, we have four aircraft that are not responding to their post, you know, uh, call that they said we're being hijacked. And it wasn't 20 seconds later, here comes a second plane and hits the building. And I remember turning to the chief of staff that was there and I told him and said, my first order was get a cable worldwide to everybody with two things. First, watch your six. This, this is not an isolated event. This could be a major, you know, uh, initiative here. And number two, all resources go to finding out from any source that we have who could have done this uh, and, and start tracking those people. So um, needless to say, it was a very intense period for us. I, I slept there for three days before I, was, I ever went to go home. Mm-hmm. And um, we worked incredible hours. But getting back to being in the building, the, the building was evacuated yeah. because that other plane that was in the air that luckily through some brave individuals ended up in a dirt field. Um, we didn't know where it was. And a lot of people were betting that, hey, look, if you really know what you're doing, you want to take out the agency, you know, as part of, you know, you hit the Pentagon, hit the agency. So tenant declared complete evacuation. And Kofor came on and said, you know what? Uh, anybody that has to go pick up their kids from school or whatever, you're free to go. Anybody that wants to go, but I'm staying. And you'd be surprised. And, and there's a story that I'm very fond of in the book uh, where I had the deputy of Hezbollah, a eight month pregnant uh, lady, case officer, Christy, and uh, I'm making the rounds like at eight o'clock at night. And there she is at her desk with a belly out to here. And I went up to her and go, what the hell are you doing here? She says, well, I'm not sure that it, the, the, like everybody thinks that it's bin Laden, Hezbollah has killed more Americans than, than anybody else to date. And, you know, I want to make sure that it isn't something we missed. Mm. So I told her, I said, look, I've delivered two babies in my life and neither one of them was mine. So <laughs> you're going back home right now. You don't want to make it a and, third? Uh, I, I wasn't about to deliver a third that wasn't <laughs> mine. And it's funny, later on in life, when uh, when we would cross paths, she would always tell me, says Rick, he said, every year that my daughter has a birthday, I think of you. And the reason I have it in the book, the reason I have it in the book is because the strongest natural tendency is motherhood you know just mess with a with a with a mama bear that's protecting mm-hmm. their cubs right and here is an eight-month pregnant lady with her only child and she is staying in harm's way for god and country if you can override that maternal instinct that's that's conviction that is true conviction to the mission wow it is 
And then what do those next few years look like for you then until you, uh, until you depart the agency and then uh, move over to Blackwater for a little bit? What are those, what are those next years? Because there's been a shift now. I mean, you're a cold warrior, Central America. You're going around the world, Philippines, Korea, a few other different, different places in there. And, uh, and now we have this paradigm shift when it comes to international terrorism. We've been attacked on home soil. Um, what do those next few years look like for you? Well, you know, as much as I love the moniker of being chief of ops of the counterterrorist center, I mean, come on, it doesn't get any sexier than that, right? Uh, so I was enjoying good visibility into ops, senior management. I was an SIS too by then. And, um, but I just didn't want to be behind a desk. Mm-hmm. And I came up with a program that, that I actually briefed the vice president of the United States, uh, Dick Cheney at the time, and Condoleezza Rice, which was a... a um, in a nutshell, it was a sleuth hound intelligence collection exercise with teeth at the end. Mm-hmm. And my concept was during 9-11, we kept hearing all this chatter that something is going on, uh, but we couldn't, we couldn't know what it was. Um, and and my, my point was, if we can make book on a number of targets that are those support mechanisms that are essential to a terrorist organization, and the reason I say support mechanisms is because they are reachable. They have to have a public persona in order to operate and provide the safe houses, the medical, the money, you know, the, the documents, everything else that terrorists need to move about it and do their damage. So the concept was to have X number of people that we had under full surveillance. We had full patterns of life on them. And then we would come up with three different scenarios for disrupting them or neutralizing them. Mm. So let's say that uh, three years down the road, we get wind that Hezbollah is up to something. Well, you pull out the file on the three Hezbollah guys, Mm -hmm. and guess what? They get disrupted Mm -hmm. one way or the other. Whether it's with your guys or ours or combination, they get either kidnapped or compromised with the cops or whatever we're we're authorized to do. And um, that was briefed to the vice president. He loved the idea. He blessed it. Then became politics again, you know, when um, as the distance between 9-11 to now, which was a good year later, um, the testosterone had dropped. The uh, the, the, the spinal calcium had also uh, evaporated quite a bit and politics took over again. And, and it was like, well, yeah, this is great. And I know you could do it. But the political ramifications are. And that's when I said, my time is done here. Wow. This is my last hurrah. And, and, and I retired. Uh, out of the agency. So, okay. So it's very clear to you, Hey, it is time to move on. It's been a solid run, but well, it's they, time they, to share the page. Yeah. If we're not, look, I, I have on my wall. I have a little thing. There's a baseball and says, sometimes you got to play hardball. And I'm a firm believer in that. I mean, we, we cannot be the, you know, the, the agency, the intelligence agent to the U S government and not have that capability in our toolbox. Yeah. We are, we only have two jobs in the agency as operators. Collect intelligence and do covert action. Mm. We have our analytical side, and of course, we have our security and everything else. But operationally, mm. you know that that is what we do. And this was nothing more than a very well thought out and in, in, in you know it's very successful in in, in its inception um, to provide that capability that was it briefed well. Mm-hmm. And I don't sit for paper tigers. Mm. I like it. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I, you've been so generous with your time. I do want to ask you quickly about your, uh, your, your the next phase of your life, the uh, the Blackwater phase, and how what was that experience like for you? 
Well, you know, I, I had met Eric uh, when I was chief of ops because he he took a team out to uh, Kabul to provide our security for you guys. And when I say he took a team out, I don't mean he was a team leader. He was one of the nugs. Mm. So I had a lot of respect for him from the very beginning. So he pitched me to come over. I was the first agency guy to come to, to Blackwater. Later on, I brought about three, four months later, I brought Kofor Black. Uh, he became the big talking head for, for Blackwater. And um, Eric was a wonderful guy to work with. Uh, he was extremely patriotic, extremely loyal. Um, and he told me, he says, look, I don't know exactly what you were doing training down at Blackwater, but the stuff that you were doing was cool shit. <laughs> so he says, we need to, you know, we, I, I want to replicate some of that. So uh, we began helping the, the, the intelligence community writ large, and that's as far as I can go. Uh, and I will tell you, um, it, it's not in the book because fortunately for me, none of the stuff we were able to do has ever leaked, mm. um, unlike the Contra programs and all these other things mm. uh, that, that are things that, that you can, they can see the light of, the light of day because they're, they're OBE as far as tradecraft or anything else. Um, but we did some really good work. And what I'm very proud of was that this wasn't contract. He didn't charge the, the government a dime on this stuff. Wow. Yes, he did with it, this stuff in Iraq and, uh, you know, Afghanistan and air and, and, and guns and, and PSDs and all that other stuff. That's where he was making his fortune. But these programs that I was initiating and subsequently running successfully, um, it was reimbursement only. They reimbursed me for my for my travel, for my pay, for my pay that I whatever it was. And I, I always thought that that was really high ground for for Eric. Um, and I have a lot of respect for him. I haven't seen him in years. He's gone his own way. Uh, a lot of people ask me, well, what do you think of Eric now? I go, I'm an intelligence officer. I don't deal in gossip. Mm. All I can tell you is facts. The fact was that when I worked with him for eight years, wow. he was a patriot and a friend. What he's doing now, uh, I, I know what other people are reading in, in, in the uh, journals, and I don't believe half that stuff anyway. So Right, probably, probably very wise. Um, but yeah, I was at SEAL Team 2. We did a lot of training at Blackwater out there on that track and those ranges, and um, you yeah, had a great time doing the driving stuff out there. That was a, that was incredible. Of course, a lot of my, my friends went over to, to, to work there and contract and do that sort of a thing. But uh, you know, I'll tell you what, the one of the highlights of my time over the 20 years in, in uniform was a uh, time that I got detailed over to the agency in Baghdad in 06 uh, for the, the STU program. And I'm, I'm sure you know what that, that is. And I was the only military person attached. And I got to tell you, that was the best assignment ever because uh, my job was battlefield deconfliction, uh, tactical radio as we'd move through these different battle spaces, uh, just touching base with the QRF. So we would go hit our targets and it was had an aircraft above a different, a special aircraft. Um, and it was just a, uh, a highlight, uh, working with those guys. It was an honor to work with those guys, learned so much from, from them. Uh, of course we had our partner force there and, and all of that, but, uh, uh, and then in my novels, it became the foundation for particularly my second novel, true believer, but it, it, it that experience, uh, has touch points with, with all of them because it was such a powerful experience. And, and I almost, uh, almost went over there. It was the, uh, I won't say the name of the program just in case it's, I don't know why it would be classified. As, uh, it's just a name, but, uh, similar to the one in Vietnam where they had guys that were typically SF at the time, and then they brought them over to the, the agency side of the house. So, um, I was in that, that program and had my little meeting with somebody in a, uh, in a hotel room in Northern Virginia, and then got the thumbs up from that. And then went through the whole medical and lifestyle poly and, and all of that. And had my oh, class yeah. update at the, at the farm doing that, the dual track to go, of course, do the case yeah. officer stuff, but I was headed to ground branch. And, uh, and then at the, the last second got, uh, 
uh, got offered an OIC position, officer in charge, platoon commander, uh, to get back in the fight. And I just wanted to get back in the fight as soon as I possibly could. So I ended up going that route, but it was, uh, I mean, it was essentially hours away from, uh, from, from going after having done all that, all that, that work and going through all that whole process and having my date at the farm, the whole thing, and then ended up staying in the, uh, in the SEAL teams. But, uh, but yeah, my time, my, my, uh, experience with the agency was nothing but, uh, but positive, uh, total professionals across the board, uh, from analysts to the paramilitary side of the house. And, uh, I want to thank you for, for sp- putting that time in, in for our country, sacrificing so much for our country, and then for telling the story because uh, people need heroes and uh, people need uh, inspiration today, particularly young people who have grown up with these luxuries that we talked about before. So um, there are very few books that are as powerful as this that kids can read today, high school people, college people. This is a must read. Uh, Parents, grandparents, buy it, read it, buy second copies, third copies, give it to your kids, give it to your grandkids. Um, Can't recommend this book enough. You just did a fantastic job with it. And uh, thank you for your your service to this nation. Thank you for yours. And thank you for having me on. Your your books are very credible because of your background. And that's what I think is is what, what differentiates novels from, you know, uh, from just, you know, people that have the background. So thank you for your service and thank you for having me on board because this means a lot to me to get that word for the same reasons you just stated out to the people. Oh, I sincerely appreciate it. And if I can ever do anything for you, please reach out. I'll be standing by. Goes both ways. You know, there are different grades of fuel for your vehicle, but did you know there's different grades of fuel for your mind? When your mind gets low quality fuel, it gets easily distracted fatigues quickly, and leaves you swamped in brain fog. But when it gets high-quality fuel that's packed with the electrolytes it needs to operate at optimal levels, your brain cells fire more quickly and efficiently, which keeps you focused, energized, and ready for anything. That's why Navy SEAL veteran Nick Norris created Protect Hydration. It's an electrolyte supplement that contains the optimal ratio of electrolytes your mind needs without any of the sugar, artificial sweeteners, or other junk it doesn't. And people love it so much, it sold out three times in 2022. They just got some back in stock right now. Danger Close listeners can get 25% off. Visit Protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T dot com slash Danger Close and start giving your mind higher quality fuel today. Once again, visit Protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T dot com slash Danger Close for 25 off. We all know how finances can take a major hit during the holiday season. That's why you need to go to NavyFederal.org and check out everything that they have going on. I have been a member since 1996, and I could not be more pleased with how all of that has gone. Partner up with Navy Federal Credit Union to pay down credit card debt. You could get into low APR on balance transfers with their Platinum credit card. It's their lowest rate card, and it's a great tool to pay down debt. Navy Federal can even help get you started on your next home improvement project. They offer home equity line of credit with convenient access to funds when you need them at a variable rate. You can also get a fixed rate equity loan that has set monthly payments for large purchases. Consolidating debt with a home equity loan could also streamline and lower your monthly payments. Learn more at NavyFederal.org, where their members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required. Loans subject to approval, call 
842-6328 for details about credit card costs and terms. H-E-L-O-C-A-P-R as low as 6.5% as of November 23rd, 2022. Black Rifle Coffee Company, the coffee that I drink every single day and powers me through my novels. Black Rifle Coffee Company set out on a mission to make the best cup of coffee that's ever hit your mug. The dream was to sell enough premium coffee to be able to build a support network for veterans, first responders, and law enforcement. Thanks to your support, all that dream has become a reality. Black Rifle Coffee is roasted by a veteran-led team of brilliant coffee graders here in the United States who work tirelessly to roast and bag the highest quality coffee right here in America. The coffee is truly one of a kind, but it's your support that gets gear, funding, and supplies into the hands of those on our front lines. This year alone, your support has helped Black Rifle Coffee Company expand our team of active duty service members, veterans, and veteran family members. Black Rifle was also able to donate over 120,000 bags of coffee to veterans and first responders in 2022. All thanks to you. Purchase at BlackRifleCoffee.com and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com and use code DANGERCLOSE20. You can also find Black Rifle Coffee in grocery and convenience stores near you. Black Rifle Coffee, Thank America's you. coffee. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Find out more about Rick Prado at rickprado.com. Be sure and pick up his book, Black Ops. Gift it to as many people as you can. It's an important read, especially right now. And uh, what an amazing guy. So that was such an honor. Rick, thank you for taking the time to come on. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it and how much I appreciate your service to the nation. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Officialjackcar.com is the website. Jackcarusa.com is the merch. In the Blood, the next novel in the James Reese saga is coming in hot on May 17th in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook, and is available for pre-order now. If you enjoyed that conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.